My guest today is Jonathan Gruber, the Ford Professor of Economics at MIT. Professor Gruber has long been involved in crafting public health policy and is considered a key architect of both Romney Care and Obamacare. He's here today to discuss his new book, co-author with Simon Johnson, Jumpstarting America, How Breakthrough Science Can Revive Economic Growth and the American Dream. John, welcome to the podcast. Great to be here. Now, the, the premise of the book, as, uh, as uh, illustrated in the, uh, uh, the headline, is you're jumpstarting America, uh, which, is, uh, which suggests that right now the sort of the, uh, the scientific economic engine is certainly not operating uh, as it should. Um, would it be wrong to say that, that America yet is still at the technological and scientific frontier compared to other advanced economies, or is, is someone actually ahead of us? Uh, you know, I don't think there's any one answer to that. I think that America overall is still the most scientifically advanced nation in the world. But I think that um, in some areas we're falling behind and other areas we've fallen behind. Uh, and in particular, what's quite striking in some examples we have in the book are areas which are American born, American perfected, but America's backed off and other countries are taking the lead. Uh, and most most strikingly is in medical research, in, pharma, in biotechnology research, where uh, leading experts predict that within 10 years we will fall behind China in what has been a dom U.S.-dominated area. I guess sort of the, uh, um, the subtext uh, to my question was, is it, is it China? Because there seems to be this, this panic among policymakers uh, that China is taking uh, the lead. Often it's uh, – they mention artificial intelligence. You mentioned uh, biotech. Just how – how overblown are those fears? How accurate are those fears? You mentioned biotech. There, there may be something to it, but more broadly, do you think we have uh, still have kind of a lead over China, uh, or are they catching up rapidly in a, in a number of areas? I mean, I think we need to avoid sort of China bashing for the purpose of China bashing. I think what we focus on in China is the fact that they have learned a key lesson from our history, and that's the key lesson that's the focus of our book, which is that in area after area of fundamental scientific advance. The private sector will not do the research involved, the basic science involved. The public sector has to lead. And where China's running ahead of us is in a public sector investment in science. Um, in the mid-1960s, the U.S. spent 2% of our entire GDP, one every $50, was government financing of research. And that government financing gave birth to the greatest middle class America's ever, the world's ever seen in products ranging from satellites to pharmaceuticals to the dustbuster, uh, and today that number's fallen to 0.7% of GDP. China is ramping up towards 2.5% of GDP. Now, you ask a great question, have they passed us yet? When will they pass us? We are, I would say Simon and I are not technology futurists, but we're technology optimists and that we believe there's a huge possible technology frontier out there and that the company that finds that frontier is going to be the one that really puts the resources in to, to find it. I mean, is it possible to spend a lot of money on scientific research and train a lot of scientists and have a, just generally a lot of smart people in your country and even have some big goals and yet not be a scientific and technology powerhouse? I mean, I think of the Soviet Union, which you know, spent money on innovation and research, had all kinds of scientists and in some areas had maybe the world's best scientists. Yet they were not ahead, perhaps briefly in some areas, but overall they were not nowhere close to as innovative and scientifically advanced as the United States. 
You know, it's a great question. And I think that, um, you know, if, if you look at history, certainly a motivation for a major investment on our side was the area they did get ahead of us, which was Sputnik. Uh, now, the missile gap that people were worried about turned out to be illusory, and they didn't have as big a lead as they thought, but certainly we didn't have as big a lead as we thought, and that basically it motivated what we did. Or if you look at World War II, I mean, I think one of those compelling examples is, for those who aren't history buffs among your listeners, is to recognize that when Hitler Hitler blitzed through Europe in the spring of 1940, okay, in 3940, um, it was with technologies we didn't know we had, we didn't even know really existed. And America was backwards at that point. We were dominated by Europe in terms of scientific expertise. And only motivated by the war did we develop the technologies that won the war. Likewise, motivated by Sputnik, we invented the technologies that gave birth to the modern American economy in many ways, such as digital computing and pharmaceuticals. So I think that you're absolutely right. We can't overreact to what we in other countries. That's why I wouldn't be so worried. I'd be somewhat worried if it was just sort of us versus China, but it's not just China. The U.S. used to be far and away the world leader in terms of government investment in basic science and R&D. We're now barely in the top 10 it's sort of in terms of a share of GDP. And this is in a world where discoveries are getting hard. So if anything, we should have ever-increasing investments in R&D, not ever-declining. Now, I want to make clear that I think – I think I, I generally agree with the premise of the book that I would probably like to see more funding uh, for, for for basic research. So I'm just trying to question sort of you know my own my own beliefs here. Uh, is it? I, I guess I see it as one thing if you have a specific sort of goal in mind, and then and then government can sort of direct funds and scientists toward that goal. You know, getting to the moon. Um, you know, the atomic bomb. Um, a particular military technology. Is government as effective in areas where perhaps the goals aren't quite so clear, or is it, or is it imp- then really imperative that if we're going to do this, that we that we very smartly pick some some goals, or are we just going to kind of start just funding lots of scientists and you know let's just see what happens? You know, I think the there's two answers to your question depending whether you're talking about politics or substance. In terms of politics, I think I, goals, I prefer goals, substance, but we'll do okay. both. <laughs> in terms of politics, goals do matter. I think that um, you know we talked to a lot of people in Washington who say, "Yes, yeah, science is cool, but you know we don't really have the money right now. Uh, we're not sure to put the money in." I think goals are matter, and that's where understanding what China's up to matters. That's where understanding something we'll talk about later about the division across geographically across America matters. These are goals that matter. But in terms of actually investment, I don't think goals matter so much. I mean, if you look at um, some of the most important investments we've made in technology, in particular in pharmaceuticals and health, they weren't about some big national priority. They were about, at the right time, people made smart decisions. So one of my favorite examples in the book was what happened in the mid, mid to late 1980s when a Nobel Prize winning um, uh, biologist uh, who'd won the Nobel Prize for understanding how to map the human gene and had a successful startup under his belt called Biogen wanted to create a company with the seemingly very long-run task of mapping the human genome. But no private funder would give them any money. They said, look, it's going to take too long, and what's in it for us? Once you map it, it's public. We don't get any money out of it. Fortunately, the federal government put $3 billion into the Human Genome Project. Once again, a project with a goal, but not some national priority. Uh, Just fortunately caught the fancy of some scientists in Congress. We put in $3 billion over 13 years to map the human genome. Today, the genomics industry, which is currently dominated by the U.S., 
is responsible for 280,000 jobs in the U.S. with an average pay of $70,000 a year. And in one year alone, genomics-based companies pay $6 billion in taxes to federal and state governments. That is twice our 13-year investment. So there's something which didn't come from some big overriding national priority. It just came from some good instincts and some leadership and finding where the private sector is not getting the job done. Um, to take a step back, um, I wonder if you just, just briefly talk about how the U.S. decided to become uh, an economic power that, that was based on science that we, you know, that we created ourselves and why we stopped doing that. Yeah, I mean, the history is fascinating. I'm not really a huge, I was not knowledgeable about it, so I, this is where I probably learned the most in doing the book. And the history, as I said, really begins um, with Vannevar Bush in World War II, who, when, when you know, Hitler blitzed across Europe. Uh, uh, meanwhile, in 1939, the U.S. produced six tanks. We had torpedoes that didn't explode when they hit the ships, and we had soldiers practicing with broomsticks instead of guns. And Vannevar Bush knocked on FDR's door. He was a prominent scientist, former dean at MIT, and said, I, I think we can win the war if you give me unlimited money to hire as many scientists as I want to invent the technology we need to win the war. And FDR amazingly said yes. And at one point, uh, Vannevar Bush's organization employed two-thirds of all physicists in the U.S. and did, in fact, invent the technology that was crucial to us winning the war. For example, radar, which was sort of originally invented uh, in the U.K., but perfected here in the U.S., and turn the tide of the Battle of the Atlantic, but more importantly, set up not only wartime applications, but peace applications. Remember, what was the first microwave called? The radar range. Basically, so much of our private sector innovation came out of these public sector um, investments. And then after World War II, Vannevar Bush had really his greatest insight, which is, look, we won the war with science, let's win the peace with science. And he wrote a famous report called Science, the Endless Frontier, which proposed the federal government continue massive science funding. Now, interestingly, coming to the politics point from a few minutes ago, that report kind of languished for a while um, until Sputnik, which, and then the man on the moon, which got people excited, and that led to the ramp-up. And the ramp-up, as I said, was by the mid-1960s. We spent about 2% of GDP on public R&D. But then three things happened. First of all, the scientists maybe got a little ahead of themselves. We started doing things like promising free power for all and nuclear-powered pens, and not worrying enough about the dangers of radiation, or as Rachel Carson pointed out in Silent Spring, the dangers of DDT. Second of all, the politicians and the scientists stopped seeing eye to eye. It was easy to see eye and eye when there was a clear enemy. When there wasn't, politicians then wanted to do some silly things like supersonic jet aircraft. Scientists told them, no, that's not a good idea, and politicians got mad. And as we say in the book, if you speak truth to power, power will cut your funding. And then the third thing that happened was budgets got tight. You know, first the Vietnam War, then the growth of great society programs, then the Reagan anti-tax revolution, most recently the debt ceiling fights. So the ramp up in science funding was bipartisan and the ramp down in science funding was bipartisan and it continues to fall to this day. Now it's about 0.7% of GDP and falling. So uh, what does that work out? How much so we're spending in, in, on so a federal level? In, in today's dollars, yeah. We are spending about $250 billion less than we spent at our peak. So GDP is, you know, about $20 trillion. So basically instead, you know, at our peak, we're spending $400 trillion a year. Now we're spending, billion. you know, something like $150 trillion a year. Uh, to billion. A year. I'm spending like $150 billion a year. Right. So we're spending, we're spending $150 uh, billion. You would want us to get back to that share of GDP level that we saw in the 1960s. No, no, I, I think that's, that's not, I, I, you know, 
I don't know what the right answer is. We propose a very bold initiative about another hundred billion, about a half a percent of GDP, okay. which would take us back to we're right in the early 1980s. So it importantly it would take us back to sort of the top, you know, where the top of the world is in terms of public funding of R and D. Um, so we're not proposing going all the way back. I'm not saying it's a bad idea, but I think you know we, we don't be that bold, you know. But um, you know, uh, others may want to go further, but that's the number we're we're, we're putting out there. All right, and uh, you you mentioned. That when there was when there was sort of a sense of uh, a crisis, uh, you mentioned you know the sp- space race. We didn't want to lose the space race. You know, I think it was LBJ. Maybe it's apocryphal. They said he did not want Americans to go to sleep under the light of a communist moon. You know, so we you know we you know so we that was important. We needed to get to the moon. Um, and some people today have suggested, well, gee, maybe climate change is that crisis that will get people interested in spending a lot more. And of course, but of course, you have a good chunk of the country that that, that questions whether the climate crisis is a crisis. So, do we need that? Do we need some sort of catalyst? That maybe, the, maybe, maybe the China. Maybe that's the uh, maybe maybe fear of the Chinese. Maybe that's the crisis. I don't know. Jim, I don't think we need as much of a catalyst because I think we also need to correct one crucial mistake that was made in the initial ramp up of science which was not explained to the American public that science policy is economic policy, that investments in science create jobs and growth. And I think if we recognize that science investments are not just about competing with China and inventing cool stuff, but actually about renewing American growth back to the levels, hopefully back towards the levels we saw uh, when, we were the t- when we were pushing for the technological frontier in a way we're not doing today. So I think the way, look, we're not going to land a man on the moon. We're not going to have a Sputnik. We're not going to have that that challenge. I think China can be some of that challenge. But I think the real way to move this forward is to recognize that we are growing slowly. And there's a demand in particular, as we emphasize in the book, in lots of parts of the country for good jobs. And science policy is a way forward on that. That's right. So I think when I think sort of some of the, the obstacles, um, one obstacle I, I think of is that just the idea that, well, we need to do this so it boosts economic growth uh, and pro- productivity, and that will boost economic growth, and people will benefit from that. There seems to be a lot more skepticism that even if we have more uh, more innovative – science leads to more innovation, which leads to more productivity, which leads to more economic growth, whether the rest of the country really benefits from that. So why why we bother doing that if most people don't benefit? That I see – that that's a criticism you must come across. That's actually, that was not more than the criticism. It's the motivation for the book. I mean, the book motivation was twofold. One was to get growth going, but the other was to do it in a way that shares the prosperity. And so our, our you know, the book is sort of, a, the first third is sort of history. The second third is kind of yeah. economics. Good, and, good, very interesting history too. That's, that, that alone is worth so reading. Much. Thank you so much. And the third part is our proposal. And our proposal really has three parts. The first is more money. We discussed the why that makes sense. The second is spreading that money around the country and recognizing the opportunities elsewhere in America besides the six coastal cities that have dominated economic growth in the last 30 years and they continue to pull away from the rest of the country. We can spread that to other places, places that have great opportunities. So what we do in the book is we just go to the data. We say, look, how many places in America are big? They have at least 100,000 people who are working age are well-educated, they have at least 25% college education, and are affordable. They have a house price of less than $265,000 on average, which up here in Boston sounds like monthly rent. Okay, Uh, We found 102 places in 36 states with 80 million people in them that fit those criteria, from Rochester, New York, 
where I just was. They have a great promise for growth around the optics and photonics industry to Ames, Iowa, which is doing incredible things with innovative agricultural technology, to uh, to Huntsville, Alabama, where they still have the legacy of the missile program and doing great things on space exploration. All around the country, we have places that have great opportunities but are not growing rapidly now because all the oxygen is sucked out of the room by New York and D.C. and L.A. and San Francisco and Seattle and Boston. And so we have to share it geographically. So that's the first way which I answer your question. But there's another way, too which is the third part of our proposal, which is that much of the returns, another, so one fundamental flaw of science policy in the post-war decades was it was very elitist and focused on the coasts. You know, all the guys who did it were MIT and Harvard and Berkeley guys, and it was all about being on the coasts. So we wanna fix that. The second problem was there wasn't a recognition that the public sector needs to capture the benefits and redistribute the benefits of this growth. So here's a simple example. Every single new pharmaceutical introduced from 2010 to 2016 was based on NIH-funded research. Yet much of the returns to that don't go to the U.S. taxpayer. They go to uh, they go to corporations that don't increasingly don't pay tax. They go to very highly compensated executives. So the other sense of which we need to share the prosperity is how do we make sure the benefits of this new technology get delivered? And that's why we, we suggest setting up what we call an innovation dividend. And here's how that would work which is that we, the government would capture some of the returns to this new technology and they would invest it in a fund and redistribute that to every American as a flat dividend, just like Alaska does with their oil revenues. The Alaska Permanent Fund pays out a $1,000, $2,000 dividend every year. It lifts 17 to 20,000 Alaskans out of poverty every year and is widely popular in a very conservative state. So let's capture some of this upside and let's return that in a way to make sure that Americans see the benefits of this. Right. Now, I, I'm going to say I'm going to say again that I like the idea of increasing this investment. I mean, I really like it. I probably I might even go I might even go further than you, further than you, and I and I and I would you know maybe raise taxes to pay for it. I wouldn't have a problem with that. But I do have two problems with the, the other part of the plan. The first part is the uh, geographical distribution. Um, uh, here, here's a quote from uh, Enrico Moretti, who is an economist who's written a lot about innovation hubs and so forth. And here's a quote. Um, if you look at the history of America's great innovation hubs, uh, we haven't found one that was directly, explicitly engineered by an explicit policy and part of the government. It's really hard. This is not how innovation hubs and cl- clusters get developed. They often get developed because of idiosyncratic factors, like a local firm succeeds and starts attracting more firms like that. And this creates a cluster that then becomes stronger and stronger that feeds on itself. So is, is there an example that, you know, of where gar- that, you, that you're aware of, at least in this country, where government's been able to, to create a, a, a hub of innovation and science where none existed before? Well, I think it comes to your definition of government created. Is there a planned city where the government has said, we're going to plop in the middle of nowhere this city and create a technology hub? No. That like has, a Soviet science city, I think. Th- they th- that has absolutely not worked. That does work in China. Okay. The fastest growing city in China is, I can't pronounce it, H-E-I-W-E-I, which is which – is John, doubling, that's why we're losing, John, for that reason. Which Go is doubling in, <laughs> doubling in population. Right. But we, we don't have a good record of that. That said, we have an incredible record of government investments in science leading to – the growth of cities. So I'll give you two examples. One is my backyard, Kendall Square. Okay. Kendall Square, which is the, you know, dozens of acres around MIT, not a huge area. Okay. Was a total dump when I was an undergraduate. My, my co-author Simon Johnson's quote is 
used to have to leave Kendall Square in order to get mugged. Okay, it was a dump. No one was there. Today, it is the most expensive real estate in America, tied with Midtown Manhattan. Why? Because federal NIH funding led bio, led the biotech boom, which was centered in Kendall Square around MIT. Now, did the federal government pick Boston? No, that's absolutely right. But the federal government led it. So let me give then, but let me come to another example, which is my favorite example in the book. I'll ask your listeners to reflect on this, which is which city in America, so don't answer, Jim, which city <laughs> in America is the home of the U.S. computer microsimulation industry and the largest university by enrollment in the country? So I'll wait a beat, and then I'll ask how many of your listeners guessed Orlando, Florida? Now, if they're like the crowds I've asked, I've asked 700 people this question, and five have gotten it right. The story is fascinating. This was, and this was probably a speech you gave in Orlando. Yeah, well, this is fascinating. <laughs> no, 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 this is fascinating. So what happened was in the mid, in 1956, the editor of the Orlando Sentinel um, endorsed a little-known politician for president named Lyndon Johnson. He continued to endorse him in 1664. 64, Johnson calls him up and says, what would you like? And he says, well, Orlando would like a Navy base. Being Lyndon Johnson, he did not stop the fact Orlando's landlocked from granting that wish. He gave them a landlocked Navy base. What do you do at a landlocked Navy base? You train people, including a small battle simulation training unit. So in 1978, the president of a medium-sized university named the University of Central Florida decided to buy a bunch of land below the university and asked the Navy if they would move their now computer sim computer simulation unit off the Navy base to be below the university and to set up a research park around it. Today, the Central Florida Research Park, based on the government funding, still ongoing about $1.4 billion of government funding a year, is the largest research park in America, third largest, I'm sorry, with 10,000 employees. And that area of East Orange County, which is 45 minutes east of Disney, has added 100,000 jobs in 30 years, based on a government investment working with the private sector. So the answer is no, we cannot do Soviet style. The government knows best. We are just going to pick some, some cornfield in the middle of nowhere and build a city. But we right. can partner with the private sector to make this work. So the difference is Enrico is right that we haven't said, the government has said this city is going to win. But where I would, I would differ from Enrico a bit is the government has partnered with the private sector to make many technology cities of technological hubs of America today work. And I think we can do that again if, and this is the big if, if we can set up a proper apolitical mechanism for doing so. Well, that some of the people say that would be the big if, that the 102 potential tech pub, hubs uh, that you have, you know, these all these criteria for determining uh, very well might get funded on a, on, a, on a reasonable basis if we had a, you know, I'm not sure, some, of the, some sort of tech hub equivalent of an infrastructure bank of experts. But once it gets through the political meat grinder, it's going to end up being uh, cities with a lot of political pull who's have representatives who are chairman of committees or, you know, that sort of thing, influential governors or mayors. And then the whole thing's going to be a political mess. Look, I mean, one nice thing about writing a book as opposed to legislation, Jim, is uh, we are optimistic, but we are fundamentally optimistic. It's an optimistic book, but we also are realistic. Well, I like it. I love it. Uh, we're realistic and say this will not work if that happens. If that happens, it's a bad idea. But that doesn't have to happen. And we can look to an example from one of the hardest decisions the U.S. government's ever had to make, which is closing military bases. Okay, that's a really hard thing to do. Poli mm -hmm. Local will go nuts. So what do we do? We set up an apolitical body called the Base Realignment and Closing Commission. You remember from House of Cards season one? Yes. That's what I was testifying in front of. Okay. And it 
did the hard work of creating a list of bases to close that Congress had to vote on an up or down basis. Congress couldn't cherry pick. And it closed 300 military bases over several rounds. Opening new technology hubs is cakewalk compared to closing a military base. So we've done this before. Um, but once again, that it's not saying it's a guaranteed. We're just saying there is a roadmap to do it. But it will not work unless we can depoliticize it, unless we can make sure that there's a competition. So what we do is we suggest a competition. We say, let's learn from Amazon. Amazon, they're a real motivating example for our book. They had a competition for HQ2, but it was a destructive competition where cities bid by giving bigger and bigger tax breaks to try to be the place they'd go. Less instead of a constructive competition where cities bid by showing they have the potential to be a new technology hub, that they have the educational resources in place, that they have a plan for infrastructure. They have a plan to grow sustainably so they don't become the new Seattle where everything's unaffordable, but rather grow sustainably. And let's have a competition like that. But I agree with you. It's not going to work unless we can figure out a way to make an apolitical mechanism to run it. Um, a couple of weeks ago, we had a biotech entrepreneur, uh, Safi Bacall, on the podcast. He had a he has a book out, and he's made a similar argument to yours about the need to expand federal funding uh, for science research. But he was very much opposed to the idea of, of some sort of dividend, arguing that the point of this research system has been to seamlessly transfer knowledge to the private industry, which then turns that knowledge into useful products and economic growth. Those products and their benefits and the economic growth from them, that's the dividend. That's the benefit. If, 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 if it results in a cancer cure, that's the benefit, not, not something else. Um, do you worry that you're sort of muddling the idea of what the point of this system is for by saying, well, that, you know, the, 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 the actual products and the growth generated by them, that's not enough. We have to have this other sort of other benefit to sell it politically. Well, you know, it's really interesting. I mean, first of all, let me be very clear, Jim. We are not claiming that we have the only incorrect answer. Unlike most book authors, <laughs> uh, we, we are hoping to raise as many questions as we answer this book. Mm -hmm. So I think you're asking a great question. Here is why we think it's a good idea. Because we think that what your guest said is well and good. But, and, you know, we've, we've said, you know, we've had other business leaders say to that, say, they said, don't worry, we'll just pay our taxes. Well, but they don't. And growth is, we'll get more growth out of this. And that is a huge dividend. We, I think the innovation dividend we talk about is the minor part of the dividend. Right. But we think right now, we don't want to put a lot of resources into something which just creates rich entrepreneurs who don't pay their taxes. And, you know, if I was setting up an ideal economic system, I would do this redistribution through a properly designed tax system, but we don't have that. And so what we're saying is here's a way to ensure that – you think of it as insurance. This would not be the major source of return, but just think sure. of it as a backstop insurance to make sure that the public sees the benefits from this and it doesn't just go into the pocket of creating a new class of, of ultra-rich entrepreneurs who pay no taxes. I mean uh, – and to the extent that we want to provide – and you can say you know how much – how much direction we want to provide here, but to the extent that we provide direction for this research, do we do we want basic research at least in areas that hold sort of the the greatest technological promise or those which have the greatest long run economic benefits that are likely to remain in the U.S., which may not exactly be uh, the same thing because you're talking sort of about the political aspect. So it's just sort of science that may produce something fantastic that sort of benefits everyone or 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 one where the economic impact really is uh will help the u.s and where the benefits the jobs and that will all more be in the united states and elsewhere uh you know i'm going to answer your question with a yes 
I think we want both. And I think what's critical is a portfolio approach to this to this problem, to not think that we have the one. That's why we think it's critical to not, you know, we've had some people say, well, that's a good idea. So why don't you just set up one or two of these technology hubs? Well, the problem is if you set up one or two, uh, then you do have to pick. We don't want to pick. We want to cast a wide net. And look, like I said, we are not futurists. We don't know where the good, we don't know what the most successful technology is going to be, but we're optimists. There are tons of great ideas out there. We go, you know, a great example, synthetic biology, which conveniently was on the cover of The Economist the week our book came out Mm -hmm. as a growth area. Something where, once again, it was invented in the U.S., perfected in the U.S., and now the research lead is going on in China because the government's backed off of funding it. So basically, we need to think about areas which are great scientific advances, but which also, I think, you know, we do need to think about science policies, economic policy, and we need to think about making sure that we're going to do things which create uh, which create jobs, and that may lead us to want to make sure it's not all just investments in AI and machine learning, but also in uh, in other things. There's also, I think, the really interesting open question, which I think will be the real key, if this goes forward, to be the center of the debate, and this is what a lot of politicians are talking to us about, which is how much of it's green energy. I mean, in some sense, you've got, that's the classic case of a market failure, where the private sector is not investing enough in clean energy, given the problems we face. Um you know, uh, how much of it's clean energy, which can create a lot of jobs, but there might not be the demand for clean energy right now. So does that make sense without a carbon tax? You know, does it make sense to invest a lot of money in clean energy when when coal's still cheap? Uh, This is the kind of difficult questions. You know, if we can just have this conversation, that'll be a great start. Do you think, do you think um, both parties have elements that provide, I mean, provide uh, objections to this? Because I can see on the left, there's a lot of concern about nuclear power, uh, on the right, there's certainly a concern that using sort of gr- you know uh, green energy as as the focal point in all in this research. There's also just generally the skepticism uh, about about science funding. We saw that in in the Obama administration, where there was concern that some of this money was going toward existing companies and wasn't sort of pure basic research. Uh, and uh, so there, so I can see where there's sort of stumbling block uh, blocks on both sides. Do you do you see those or do you see those as significant? I, 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 I think that's a pessimistic way to put it. I think there's support on both sides. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that everybody's excited about science. You know, maybe not as much out front in the Republican Party right now, but behind closed doors, there's a lot of excitement both sides about science. I think the big issue that we hear is, well, yeah, sure, we like science, but where's the money going to come from? And that's why we think that politically, the benefit, look, this sort of spreading it around the country. I think economically, you can make strong arguments on one side or another. You could, you know, we've heard people say, look, we've had our, you know, our elitist friends here say, oh, all the smart guys are in Cambridge. Why would you want to send the money elsewhere? I think that's rather elitist, but kind of, I understand you can make arguments on that. But politically, politically, if we spread the money around, that will help politically get people interested, to make people realize that science can be a national priority. And we think we can build this from the ground up. We've talked to a lot of local politicians of cities that are on our list are saying, yeah, this is exactly what we're looking for. We need to have the opportunity to compete with these with New York and Boston in terms of actually getting these kinds of federal resources. So I think that if you think about the political support, I think what really makes it work is a combination of an excitement about science on both sides of the aisle combined with an interest in local leaders and using this as development policy. So let me just finish uh, with this. We ha- we've had a lot of guests on talking about innovation and productivity, autonomous cars, is productivity over? We've had Robert Gordon, all kinds of folks. And um, the question I've, I've started to ask is, 
what is your positive story to tell people who may be anxious about the future? And boy, they hear about more science research. That just sounds like we're going to create a lot more things, uh, a lot more devices to replace people. So what is your story? Here's how this works out. And we have we have a country that's growing faster. Growth is more widely shared. And it's a, really a future we can look forward to. What is, so what is your like good news, good ending story? Well, I, I think my good ending story I already gave you. Unfortunately, I blew I blew my shot, which yeah. is the Human Genome Project, which did not, which created two hundred and eighty a three billion dollar investment over thirteen years, which created uh, has created two hundred and eighty thousand jobs with an average wage of seventy thousand dollars a year. Those are good jobs that America is dominating because we went first. If you go first, you get the jobs. Not all of them, but going first helps. And so I think that's a great example of something which is not robots, it's not AI. But, you know, the other point to make is, look, the robots are coming whether we like it or not. The question is who makes them? So, you know, if, 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 if we're going to deal with the future of robots, let's think about being the guys who has the jobs making the robots, not the guys who just have the jobs replaced by the robots. And I think that that's sort of another motivator for why we need to take this, do this activity now. My guest today has been Jonathan Gruber, co-author with Simon Johnson of Jumpstarting America, How Breakthrough Science Can Revive Economic Growth and the American Dream. John, thanks a lot for coming on. My pleasure. <laughs>